because I do think that this is going to be a game changer for PCB design, right? You know, all of a sudden, you know, well, not all of a sudden, our PCB designers today and for many years have been challenged with, you know, as consumers wanting it faster, it lighter, you know, more functionality in smaller spaces. And ultimately, you know, we're hitting this crunch time in printed circuit board design, where with the 75 micron or three mil line in space, you just can't route out the devices that you need in the space that you have. And so you're going to multiple lamination cycles, multiple levels of stacked or staggered microvias, all increasing time, increasing cost, decreasing reliability. And that's, that's the world that we live in with subtractive etch. Um, all of a sudden, this designer has the ability to use, say, 25 micron or one mil line in space. It changes the way that you look at design. That's my guest, Tara Dunn, next on Reliability Matters. Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Tara Dunn is a seasoned professional with more than 20 years in the electronics industry, exclusively focused on the PCB sector. Her experience spans roles from manufacturing to sales and marketing. Tara was the founder of Omni PCB, a technical manufacturer's representative for the printed circuit board industry, which specializes in quick turn projects, PCB design, high density interconnects, RF microwave PCBs, and more. Tara is also the vice president of marketing and business development for Averitech, which develops and licenses advanced manufacturing processes and the key chemistries that enable them for a variety of electronic products, including very high density printed circuit boards, semiconductor packaging, RF and millimeter wave passive components. Tara writes a regular column for PCB007.com and is a regular contributor with Altium. Tara also co-publishes PCBAdvisor.com. And perhaps most interesting, she was one of the founders of Geekapalooza. We'll get into that and much more in our conversation with Tara Dunn. Tara Dunn, thank you for being my guest today on Reliability Matters. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yes, as am I. So my, I got into this industry a long time ago, as my uh, friend and colleague Doug Pauls would say, when mammoths ro roamed the earth. Uh, I think I've heard him say that four or five or four, four or five hundred times maybe. Um, back in the mid eighties, I, the first time I saw a flex circuit, I, I just was not overly impressed, uh, with the technology. It just seemed to be a connector, a flexible connector, um, some piece of what looked like mylar or whatever, whatever they're made out of. And I'm sure you'll correct me later. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was basically just, uh, used to connect, uh, two rigid boards together or a print head or something along those, those lines. Now I see uh, boards, uh, flexible uh, circuits that are really circuits. They actually have components soldered to them and they're much more sophisticated than they used to be. So for the sake of my audience and me in particular, uh, walk me down the road of flexible circuits. What's the difference between a flex circuit and a rigid flex? Uh, what evolutionary paths did uh, did that technology take from the earlier days of flex circuits to where we are today? Happy to do that. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had a similar experience when I started in the industry. 
Uh, first, I, I come to the industry very much by accident. Um, I didn't know what a flexible circuit or barely what a printed circuit board was when I started in the industry years ago, um, but have been in the industry for many years. Most of it focused on flex and rigid flex. So I have picked up a thing or two, but when I was first learning, um, I, I had, like I said, a similar experience. It looked like a, you know, like a ribbon cable, maybe connecting two different um, areas on a circuit board together, single-sided, double-sided, you know, very low component count type designs. Um, and then I kind of worked through a progression of technology as I learned as well, you know, going to multi-layer flex, going to rigid flex, going to bookbinder flex, which is, you know, crazy complex. Um, only to find out when I got to the bookbinder flex and was told, Tara, don't ever talk to your customers about this. We don't ever want to build this. This is so difficult. I'm like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And here it had been being built for 40 or 50 years. I just didn't know about it. And so I find that that progression happens with many people. And I always kind of joke around and say, you know, no matter where you are in your experience with flex, there's always something new to learn, even if you've been very experienced in working in the high-tech rigid flex area, you know, there's new materials and new processes that are coming out every day. Um, but that's a, a very normal progression as you learn about these materials. Um, to go back to the one of the questions that you asked, the difference between a flexible circuit and a rigid flex. Um, flexible circuit, as the name implies, is all flexible materials. Rigid flex incorporates layers of um, circuitry on the rigid pieces. Uh, a good way to differentiate it is a, a flexible circuit can have FR4 stiffeners to stiffen it and have rigid um, layers associated with it. It's a very common um, design attribute. A rigid flex, on the other hand, is going to most likely have circuitry on the rigid layers, but it will definitely have a plated through hole connecting the rigid layers to the flexible layers. So that's the primary difference between uh, rigid flex and a flex, straight up flex. Yeah, that's interesting. So I watched some, uh, I was a kind of a, a voyeur last night, uh, or actually several days ago, preparing for this interview, I was watching some of your um, videos on uh, uh, with Altium and, and, and others uh, talking about flex circuits, trying to, trying to get up to speed, trying to get smart enough to ask you intelligent <laughs> questions. And uh, I, I learned of a term uh, you called SWAP, uh, which was an acronym. Tell me what uh, SWAP means. Space, weight, and packaging, I believe, was the terminology I was using at the time. And that is you know, one of the great benefits of flexible materials. Um, they're great um, when you need to reduce the amount of space, reduce the weight. And obviously for packaging, they can be folded over on top of each other. They can be folded around um, corners. It can you know, move and be placed around different units in, in, the, in the functional um, electronics box that's being built. Um, so lots and lots of benefits of flex, but definitely swap or space weight and packaging is one of the primary benefits. Let's go down that, uh, let's go down that benefit list of, uh, of rigid flex and, and flex in general. You talk about swap, you know, mm -hmm. space weight packaging. Um, one of the concerns that would come to mind, particularly these days when we're mounting components to flexible circuits is heat dissipation. Um, in a in a traditional rigid board, you know, world, uh, regular laminate world, we put big copper ground planes and we put uh, all sorts of you know technology in to dissipate the heat. In a flexible circuit, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, a lot of mass to absorb that heat. How does that work in a in a flex circuit? Right, you know, a very thin layer of polyamide is a great dissipator of heat, particularly compared to 
you know, our typical FR4 rigid materials. So yeah, it's definitely used um, for heat dissipation and thermal management. So the material, the polyamid, which I formerly called mylar incorrectly, the, the polyamid material is a, a better heat sink than a, than a traditional you know, FR4 material would be? The actual material itself helps dissipate heat? Exactly. The thinness of the material as well as the polyamid attributes. And you were correct probably with mylar. That is another material that can be used for flex circuits. Oh, good. Okay. One less mistake I've made <laughs> this year. Um, so um, uh, tell me about biocompatibility. You, talk earlier, uh, you talked earlier um, on, a, on a, uh, I think, an Altium event about biocompatibility as one of the advantages of flex circuits. What is, what is that about? Sure. So polyamide itself is a bi considered a biocompatible material. Um, I think what you might have heard me speaking about is something that's relatively new in the industry, um, having to do with an additive process. Um, there is now a way to use gold as a conductor instead of copper. So a Veritech has a semi-additive ASAP, Veritech semi-additive process, and you can put gold traces rather than copper traces, which makes the polyamide gold combination, you know, a very biocompatible option for medical devices. One of the one of the videos I, I saw uh, had you say choose wisely, and this is probably not fair to you because I'm throwing some of your own words to you completely out of context, but it was on the subject of material selection. So uh, this was part of uh, the communicate your your uh, requirements to your supplier. Uh, what what does that mean? Choose wisely. What are some of the concerns? Uh, some of the important things when someone is Specking out a flexible uh, circuit or, a, or a, a, a rigid flex circuit, what kind of things does do the suppliers need to know, and what types of questions should the suppliers ask, and what type of answers should the um, should the users provide those suppliers so they get the right material for the right application? Sure, I think uh, it's very well. It's probably very important in any printed circuit board design to really consider your materials, um, but especially important with flexible circuits. There's, you know, and for a number of different reasons. So yeah, when I talk about choosing wisely, there's a few different reasons that I that I make that comment. Um, I'm often asked for common flex materials. I'm also asked how to, you know, help drive cost out of your design, make sure you're not designing in something that's more expensive than it needs to be. And a lot of that revolves around materials. You know, there are two different types of flex materials. Well, actually there's many different types of flex materials, but if we're gonna look at, you know, the more traditional flex circuits and the polyamide and rolled and yield copper um, laminates, you know, they come in a wide variety of options. You can have anything from half ounce to two ounce copper combined with, you know, anything from half mil to five mil polyamide put together in a laminate um, for your fabricator and that laminate you know, maybe bonded together with acrylic adhesive or flame retardant adhesive or be adhesive lift. And um, that gives, you know, a designer so many options, but it's also important that the designer understands what their fabricators are typically building with. Um, for example, if you spec'd out a half ounce copper on five mil polyamide, that could very well end up being a special order if your fabricator is more predominantly using half ounce copper and one mil polyamide or two mil polyamide. And if you don't have a particular um, reason that's driving you to a, a thickness or an electrical requirement that's gonna require that thickness, you may spec in something that's gonna be unnecessarily expensive with a longer lead time. 
Um, also important to understand adhesive-based and adhesive-less materials. Um, the, the ribbon cable type flex that you had talked about at the beginning of our conversation, those are often done with um, acrylic adhesive or a flame retardant version of that. Um, it's a lower cost material than the adhesive-less laminate. But adhesive-less becomes very, very important when you're looking at multi-layer flex. That thickness adds up very quickly and you certainly don't want to have the flex that didn't flex. Um, I've done that many times. Um, and takes also a, it's very- Takes away the whole advantage of flex, right? If right. it doesn't flex. <laughs> There's nothing more embarrassing than when you go to supply your customer with a flex that doesn't flex. Um, right. um, but it, uh, adhesive-less material is also very important in rigid flex. So we will always recommend adhesive-less material for a rigid flex because you don't want to introduce the acrylic adhesive into the plated through holes um, with that rigid material. Right. A lot of CTE mismatch issues that go on. So, you know, those are just touching on a couple different things where I say, you know, choose wisely for your material. I mean, it can be performance related. It can be overall thickness related. It could be um, cost related as well. And, you know, one of the things I always like to say is communicate with your fabricator. And this is a great place to start that. Start with that overall stack up and you know, let them know your requirements and then ask them to help with materials that they use readily, things that are likely to be in stock um, when you're ready for them. And that'll definitely help, you know, meet your electrical requirements that they've helped calculate in and then um, help ensure that you're not adding in extra cost or extra lead time unnecessarily. Yeah, that makes sense. Not just in uh, in uh, specking out your needs for uh, circuit boards, but for everything. If you don't have a specialty, um, don't require special items that have to be specially ordered with special lead times and special prices and all that all all, all that type of stuff. Um, with you know, when I when I look at the the movement of flexible circuits, um, I, or when I, let me put it this way, when I look at the use of flexible circuits, I see one of two. Uh, types of applications. One where the circuit is uh, is bent and twisted for packaging purposes, so they can connect two boards together, and then it never moves after that. And the other is uh, something that has to um, um, you know connect to a device which is which moves within the product. You know, I, I think of the old uh, print head things. Uh, you know, back days when we had uh, well, even even modern printers still have uh, uh, flex circuits on them that that move. What um, is there such a thing as, as in the metal world, they would call that metal fatigue. You know, you take a piece of metal, you bend it too many times and it, and it becomes brittle and, and breaks. Uh, is there a life cycle with um, the materials that are used and, the, and the th maybe even the thicknesses of copper that are chosen when it comes to being able to, be, to actually be flexible and, and flex throughout the life of the product? Uh, are those concerns? And, and if so, do they also relate to the in-use climactic environment? Um, you know, super cold, super hot, uh, lots of thermal excursions. Uh, how does all that uh, play into the material selection? And, and then we can kind of get into tips and tricks for for allowing the mobility of, of these products. It's a very compound question, but... <laughs> Let me give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So um, yeah, all of those things that you mentioned factor into the long-term reliability and flexibility of any design. And you know, we have designs where they're gonna flex millions and millions of times um, that are designed just for that. We've got flex to install, as you mentioned. And you know, over time, I have seen the flex to install 
parts be bent once and something was wrong in the material construction or in the design itself wasn't um, as flexible as it needed to be and that copper um, cracked almost immediately. And then you have other applications where it can go millions and millions of times and, and still perform very, very well. You know, IPC does a really good job on bend radius recommendations, which is something that's always really important to take into account. And that is, you know, the ratio of um, the thickness of the copper to the bend that you're going to have. And then they have specs for, you know, single layer, for double layer, for dynamically flexing. Um, those are always really, really good guidelines to follow. Very good. Now, I know in every industry, they have their tips and tricks. If, you know, I, I produce a tips and tricks series for cleaning um, once a week. And, you know, it's amazing how many tips and tricks we, we have up here that aren't published anywhere. We just, we just get them over our, our um, years of experience. When it comes to um, fabricating uh, flex circuits, rigid flex circuits, what are some of the tips and tricks that you would recommend to designers uh, to, uh, in terms of how they spec their part, how they design their part? Um, it, there's got to be, you know, a David Letterman's top 10 or top five type of list. For those young uh, millennials that are on the call, they're, they're probably wondering, who's David Letterman? But, um, you know, whoever, whoever the, the current, uh, current uh, popular late night host is today. Um, what are some of the top, top uh, tips that you can give designers uh, and, and even users uh, of that material? Sure. Uh, I don't know where to start with that one. <laughs> so I'm going to start with one that gets left off of the PCB fabrication drawing very frequently. I think we see it often in the assembly drawing, um, but the assembly drawing doesn't always get passed along to the fabricator who's building the boards. And that is to communicate in that PCB, PCB fab drawing how the circuit is going to be flexed and used in end use. Yeah. So, you know, because they're building it in a two, you know, a two D file and it's being built in a two D state, not really understanding exactly how it's going to be used. The fabricator is going to have a difficult time helping make recommendations. Um, if they know how it's going to flex and you ask them for advice, do you think this is going to work? What could we do? What are the tips and tricks that we could do to help improve the reliability and flexibility of this? Um, that that goes a long way towards the longevity of a flex circuit. Um, but some basic basic tips and tricks uh, for people getting started is, first of all, make sure you're not over-specking the material thicknesses, whether that be copper thickness or polyimide thickness. You know, again, going back to that bend ratio of um, the angle of the bend versus the material thickness. So thinner materials or adhesiveless materials, a lot of different ways to keep that stacked up as thin as possible. Um, Crosshatch copper, you know, it's one thing, I, you know, I kind of joke, tongue-in-cheek about the flex that didn't flex, but I have had several of those um, over the course of my career in flex circuits. And it really boils down to that. You really don't comprehend how quickly like a solid copper ground plane is going to become rigid, right? You know, it, so if you're doing a multi-layer and you have a few of those layers stacked up, before you know it, you can't even, you know, bend the circuit because that copper is solid copper. Um, so, in that case, there's a couple different things that you can do. Um, rather than bond all of the layers together, um, unbonded layers. So don't put the adhesive between all of the bonded layers. Uh, really significantly improves the flexibility of the overall circuit. 
and crosshatch copper also, which is kind of a trade-off between electrical and mechanical. So it's things that you have to take into consideration with the design. But even if it's only in the bend radius, adding crosshatch copper in that area, just where it's going to be bending, can make a significant difference in the longevity of that circuit and the number of flexes that it'll be able to use. And, and another one going to communicate with your fabricator is the use of um, panel plate versus, versus um, button plate, as we would call it. So, and that you have to know what your fabricator's preferred process is. Some who fabricate flex do button plating, pads only plating as a normal course of action. Some do panel plating. But when you do the panel plating, you're adding in electrodeposited copper on top of that rolled annealed copper. And there are times where changing that and having just the pads have the electrodeposited copper can make a significant difference on the flexibility of a design. You know, thousands of applications have ED copper and panel plated flex circuits. You know, it's a perfectly acceptable fabrication technique that, that serves well, but occasionally there's going to be designs for a number of other reasons that that makes all the difference in the world right there. So something to definitely keep in mind. And then that's a fabrication um, communication, really. And your fabricator also has the ability to orient the circuit in the green direction of that rolled annealed copper, which can also improve flexibility. And again, goes back to just communicating with you know the, your fabricator so they understand how the things are going to flex and end use, and are able to do those little adjustments during the fabrication process. I heard you talk also about uh, when you specify a mill thickness for the copper. Um, I think the example you gave was 1.4 mil. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then uh, there was. There were applications in fabrication where the uh, fabricator would add up to an extra mil mm -hmm. for very specific reasons. So you go from 1.4 mil in your spec to you know 2.4 mil, uh, which could change things. What are, are there? Are there? Is that a question of just the fabricator being sloppy and adding more, or is there a specific um, design um, spec or a, a feature? that requires the fabricator to add more copper uh, thickness sure. because of the way the board was uh, uh, spec'd out. Yeah, so that goes back to the panel plate versus the button plate that I had mentioned. So mm -hmm. to make that plated through hole connection um, between layers, fabricator is typically gonna plate you know, anywhere between half a mil or 0.7 to 1.4 mils, I should say. So half ounce to one ounce copper in that hole to make that connection and that's standard process. Um, the difference is in a panel plate, that copper thickness, maybe that 1.4 mils of copper is gonna go across the entire panel and become part of flexible circuit um, trace. If you use just pads only plating, you will only plate that copper in the pads in the plated through hole, which leaves the rest of the panel as the rolled annealed and more flexible copper. Yeah, very interesting. So as as um, IoT makes its way into our, our lives, Internet of Things, mm -hmm. uh, and specifically wearables, textiles, things like that, that is that a traditional use of, of uh, or is that a use of traditional flex circuits, or are electronics and textiles an entirely different animal? No, IoT is a great, um, great use of flex circuits. You know, 
just by nature, a lot of that is going to be small, needs to be lightweight, maybe embedded into something else, maybe have to wrap around it, you know, another piece as it's gathering data, things like that. So blends perfectly with flexible circuit materials that are thinner, lighter weight, more flexible. Um, and the other thing that we haven't really talked about is uh, shape. You know, some of these IoT configurations, wearables, things like that, it's very beneficial to have a non-traditional shape. You know, our circuit boards are square or rectangle, occasionally right. round, but flex, you have you know, all the creativity in the world um, to how you want that piece to be shaped and its end use. And so I think there's a lot right. of advantages there for IoT. Yeah, it's, you're not stuck with a standard Euro card specification of, of a rectangular or a square board. Yeah. I, I think of, uh, my audience is probably tired of hearing this, but I, whenever I talk about IoT, I kind of give the example of, uh, of stupid IoT, you know, which is um, electronic connected toothbrushes. You know, that's just an example of us putting electronics and things just because we can, not really because anyone's asking us to. But that's a good example of a non-traditional um board uh, because the, the form factor is already there. And because these are form factors, uh, packaging um, sizes that were historically not embedded with electronics, uh, the form factor is not going to change. The electronics have to change to fit into that form factor. So uh, that, that, yeah, you're right. That is a, um, a pretty good use of, of flex circuits, uh, particularly in a lot of these IOT devices, they're, they're not necessarily extremely sophisticated. So um, we don't really need 24 layer rigid boards, you mm -hmm. know, uh, all stacked up with, uh, you know, tons of bottom terminated components on it. Uh, a lot of the uh, uses of IOT are, are relatively simple devices um, that mm -hmm. have already been miniaturized and can go into a, a very small uh, uh, footprint. Uh, what types of challenges does IOT place on circuit boards in general. Uh, and I'm thinking kind of down the, the line of a harsh environment. Um, you know, we tend to, if, if electronics go with us, we tend to go into nasty places uh, where it's hot and cold and humid and, and, um, and, and maybe subject them to shock and vibration and things like that. Is that a concern any higher or lower when it comes to uh, flexible circuits or is it the same for any kind of circuit assembly? You know, I don't have any data to answer that question with, but, you know, the thought that comes to mind is it's still important to consider no matter if it's a flex design or a rigid design. But I do think that flexible circuits, just by their nature, are able to absorb a lot of that shock and um, temperature and, and, and things like that just a little bit better. Like yeah, yeah, just they're, they're they thinner, move. They're yeah, more they're... flexible. They're, yeah, it gives you a little, sure. I think it, it maybe opens up that window a little bit for you. Yeah. Can any type of component be soldered to a flexible circuit or are they limited to, um, I don't know, more traditional, simple uh, components? And I'm, th I'm thinking in the world of bottom terminated components, QFNs and things like that, are those mounted to uh, flexible circuits or, do they or, or does that technology require uh, multiple layers and, and uh, a more rigid um, uh, substrate to be mounted to? Well, you know, the minute I say you can put any component on a flex, there'll be somebody to correct me. <laughs> right, right. But, but in general, um, yes, I do think that you can put nearly any component that you would want to put on a rigid board, you could put on a flex board with the caveat that you need to design for that, you know, having a piece of FR4 supporting that flex. 
So your heavy, right. a heavy connector isn't putting all of the strain on a very lightweight flex, which is going to crack your conductors very quickly. Right. So as long as there's right. some type of rigidized um, material to help support that component, I think um, you could probably use pretty much anything with a flex, as long as you're able to accommodate that support in the design. Before we move on to our next subject, uh, is there any advice from the trenches, uh, all your years of experience in, in uh, supplying these uh, flexible circuits uh, and other, other uh, more traditional materials to your customers? Uh, what, what are the common mistakes people make? Uh, what, what, um, do you ever have, do you have any examples of common mistakes people make and, and uh, some tips and tricks for avoiding those mistakes? Is there a, a poster child? I know from my industry, there's, you know, one or two that just happen all the time. Um, and I'm sure you see that in your industry as well. Uh, can you share any of, of that kind of parting advice for this subject um, on, on um, flex circuits and, and rigid flex? Sure. Sure. The first thing that comes to mind probably isn't specific to flex, but it is the mistake that I see happen over and over and over again. And that is the fab notes. You know, it can spend 400 hours working on a design that's so complex, I can't even fathom how a designer, you know, gets to the final version of that, that circuit board. But at the same time, if those fab notes aren't perfectly clear, or if a note got copied over incorrectly or got left off, um, off of the drawing for whatever reason, you know, that stops everything at the fabricator. And usually, you know, when you're going out for your prototypes, there's time constraints and, you know, the last thing you want to do is hear that your job is on hold. And I would say still today, 80 to 90% of the PCB drawings, whether those be flex, rigid flex, or rigid boards, are actually stopped at front end engineering just to clarify um, print notes and ask questions. So maybe uh, the drill chart doesn't match the data perfectly or the size doesn't quite match perfectly. You know, just something got adjusted and didn't quite get finished. So, I'd say that was probably the number one reason um, that jobs go on hold and, and progress stops. It's just, just with those fab notes. And I think in terms of flex specifically, um, the problem that I see people have most often is actually in the simple flexes um, that you had talked about and making sure that there's enough rigidity behind the components that are going to be used because that will very easily crack your copper if your components are too heavy for the circuit once it starts flexing and just not understanding that. You know, there's something with flex, but it's, and once you get it in your hands and feel it, it can be more flexible than you expected. Maybe it's gonna be more rigid or stiff than you expected. Um, so those are all things that factor into the design and overall experience with flex. Your experience with the, with the fabricators, you were a, a broker uh, mainly, is that, is that correct? Yeah, my company um, that I actually just moved on from, Omni PCB, is a manufacturer's rep group. So we represent PCB fabricators. Uh, we right. have different specialties. So my background has always been uh, fabrication. Right. So these fabricators, uh, will they look at a print sometimes and just go, no, no, and and, and reach out to their customer and, and uh, recommend changes? Or is it a case where the, it's on the print and they go, okay? That's what they want. That's what they get. Or is there a little bit of both? I think there's a little bit of both. And I think that depends on the fabricator that you're working with and the relationship that you have. It's funny. I just did a series. It was Ask Kara. People were sending in questions. And one of them is, 
why doesn't my fabricator tell me when I'm doing something that's poor practice, you know, for design? And um, I'm like, I don't know, from the fabrication side, I feel like we do <laughs> do that. But I think that that just shows that um, maybe that communication isn't as, as good as we all think it is. Um, I think sure. some fabricators are very fast to jump in and say, hey, I think you could do this, this, and this to improve the design. And maybe by improve the design, they mean make it more manufacturable. The yield's higher, the reliability is greater, ultimately the cost is down, you know, and make, make these suggestions. That's often my experience. But I also think that there are fabricators as well that you send in a drawing, they're going to do their best to build whatever's on that drawing for you, whether yeah. that be good design practice or bad. Right. Yeah, you always um, you always worry about getting what you what you ask for. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, but I, it goes back to my soapbox that I'm always on. I feel like, with, particularly with Flex, is just that open communication with your fabricators. You know, most fabricators have field applications engineers or front end engineers that you know that's what they love to do every day is talk to customers, make recommendations, help make you know designs more manufacturable, and they're building these every day all day long seeing everything so that's sure. just a wealth of knowledge to take advantage of especially if you're new to flex and even if you're not <laughs> right right no that's that's a very good point let's switch gears here uh for a moment and talk about a technology that in in my world is just a little bit of a mystery um so you can you can help me bring this up to speed you uh co-hosted or co-presented uh, an additive uh, exchange with SMTA not too long ago. Is that, am I right on that? Yeah, with the Additive Electronics Tech Exchange, it was our second year. Um, Co-chaired that with Lenora Clark. Okay, good. Then I've got the right person. Tell me what additive manufacturing is as it applies to our industry. So, you know, that was one of the things that Lenora and I identified right away when we started talking about this and planning our first year event was when we say additive, um, I think we were talking additive conference was the terminology we were using at that time. And immediately, you know, we got hit with 3D printing and um, printed electronics and things like that. Uh, but what Lenore and I focus on in, in the conference that we've been co-chairing is we now term it additive electronics instead of additive manufacturing, which helps narrow that definition down to um, circuitry. And then the event that we host is actually narrowed down even further. So what we're talking about in those events is additive electronics and specifically how it relates to that gap kind of between PCB scale and IC scale. So three mil line in space down to five micron line in space and what technologies are filling that gap and what do we see coming on the horizon for that? So um, help me understand exactly what that process is. Um, are we printing? What are we printing? If we're printing anything, um, and my understanding of additive manufacturing is it's, you know, again, it's used for a lot of different applications and in different industries and all has a slightly different connotation. But in our in our world, what exactly are we printing? Um, what are we adding through this uh, additive process? Okay, so yeah, so I will explain a Veritex semi additive process or ASAP which is um, commercially available right now in uh, three printed circuit board facilities here in the US. So in that case, um, the different, let me think, where do I wanna start? Okay, so when you're starting with um, typical printed circuit board manufacturing, 
or that be rigid or flex. It could be either one. Um, you start with a laminate that your fabricator purchases. Um, and then they ultimately etch away the copper that they do not want, creating the circuit pattern. So the additive process is going to do that in reverse. It's going to start with the laminate and then etch away all of the copper on that piece of laminate, leaving your bare dielectric, and then add back the copper that you need for that circuit pattern. Um, it'll start with a very thin layer of electroless copper, much thinner than um, what what we're used to with traditional electroless copper plating. And then it will be, you know, photoresist, image, um, electrolytic copper plating, all the same processes that we're using in subtractive etch um, circuitry today. The primary difference being, as I said, you're starting with a bare dielectric and adding um, copper to that. And because you're doing that, you can have much finer feature sizes than we see um, being limited at the subtractive etch process. For example, subtractive etch is usually limited around 75 micron trace in space or three mil line in space. Um, some, some can go down to 50, but that's only a handful. That's not the bulk of the fabricators um, in the industry. And the additive process can go down to 15 micron or 25 microns, so wow. sub one mil line in space or anything in that gap, you know, between three mil and down. And, you know, we're finding some um, great RF benefits to that as well because when you're etching that very thin layer of electroless copper, um, it's a flash etch, it goes very quickly, it doesn't degrade the trace. With subtractive etch, we see that trapezoidal effect. Um, so that's eliminated. The traces are now straight up and down, which has RF benefits as well. Yeah. Uh, so we can get more traces into a smaller footprint, so to speak, uh, much finer traces with right. ad additive processes than we can with traditional processes. Um, it, when I think of that type of process, in my head anyway, uh, logically, it seems very slow. It seems like a, a much slower process than um, traditional uh, fabrication. Is, is that correct? Is, is it like any printing process, a, 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 very, a very specific, very accurate, and very slow uh, production method? No, actually not at all. It is going through the exact same um, electroless copper bath that's currently being used in subtractive etch, the same electrolytic bath. There is um, a chemistry that's applied to it, a liquid metal ink chemistry. Um, so that does take a little bit of extra time to apply that chemistry, but it's just a, a pretty standard chemical process and timing of that and curing. And then you also eliminate some of the electroless copper steps as well. So really, sure. it's not. Um, it doesn't take you know any significantly longer period of time, and it follows most traditional printed circuit board um, processes. Okay, well, thanks for straightening me out there. I <laughs> thought it was a much slower process. So what are, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Uh, I would think if it was all advantages, everyone would be building boards that way. Um, so what what constitutes a good use of that technology? What constitutes uh, an avoidance of that technology? Uh, what's the uh, what's the deciding factor? Sure. Well, so to address the advantages first, because I do think that this is going to be a game changer for PCB design, right? You know, all of a sudden, you know, well, not all of a sudden, our PCB designers today and for many years have been challenged with, you know, as consumers wanting it faster, it lighter, you know, more functionality in smaller spaces. And ultimately, you know, we're hitting this crunch time in printed circuit board design, where with the 75 micron or three mil line in space, 
you just can't route out the devices that you need in the space that you have. And so you're going to multiple lamination cycles, multiple levels of stacked or staggered microvias, all increasing time, increasing cost, decreasing reliability. And that's, that's the world that we live in with subtractive etch. Um, all of a sudden, this designer has the ability to use, say, 25 micron or one mil line in space. It changes the way that you look at designs. Um, and I think we're just scratching the surface. Um, this is relatively new technology. So scratching the surface on how to best apply that. You know, I've seen some cases. I have one example where we're working on a 12-layer design. They just It was 12 layers, and it was three lamination cycles. They went down to eight layers, used four of them with additive and four of them with subtractive etch, combined those eight layers, and then reduced it from 12 layers to eight, but probably more importantly, from three lamination cycles to one. So that's a great use. You know, the, the, the cost went down. It was much simpler to build. And when I say reset the technology curve, that's kind of what I mean. Like we're able to accomplish the same thing in a much simpler way with this ability for 25 micron trace in space. But um, yeah, I'm working on a series now with designers. I'm doing short little videos, trying to figure out how creative can we get in applying this? Because you know, just applying it to an already complex design is probably not the greatest benefit of the technology. You know, you kind of say throw in the kitchen sink, everything but the kitchen sink. If you take something that's already crazy and add in just smaller traces, I don't think we're really getting the huge benefit that we could get right. from just simplifying overall. Um, and to address your question about the disadvantage, I think the disadvantages right now are just that. We don't know the best way to apply it. We haven't developed best practices. So a lot of it's collaborative and learning as we go, which is really exciting, but it's also difficult for people, especially designers. You know, PCB designers are used to having, here's my design rules. Here's what I need to do. How do I get from A to B, right? And, and there isn't that yet. So we're all kind of working together, trying to get through that learning curve of how to best apply it. Do you think that's going to be a generational thing? Do you think, you know, some of the um, you know, old timers, you know, like <laughs> my age and, and up um, will um, resist that technology and some of the younger um, uh, designers will embrace that technology? Or do you think, that really doesn't apply uh, from an age and experience standpoint, that it's new technology is new technology. I think it'll be both. You know, I definitely think it'll be an easier technology for younger, newer designers. I should say newer, not necessarily younger, right? People that don't have all the years right. of experience designing one way um, to just adopt it, right? Here's what it is. Oh, let me see how I can work with this. This is great. Um, but I also work um, in the series I'm doing, I've got a bunch of very well-seasoned designers who are so excited for the ability. Um, one of the people I was working with said, designers are always out shopping, he called it, which I thought was a good analogy, out shopping because yeah. they're always you know, trying to balance all these different um, requirements for any type of electronics design and how can they uh, what, what's out there available to help make that a little bit easier ways to solve problems. So he said, we go shopping. So now he's shopping and he's seeing 25 micron, you know, line in space and the light bulbs go off and he's like, Oh, we can do this. You know, this is going to be so exciting. And I had somebody else contact me. It was one morning, thought of it in his sleep. I think <laughs> he was like, look what we can do. And he took something that normally was taking him six or eight layers 
you know, with um, blind vias to route out, and he routed it out into a double-sided board just by changing wow. the line within space. Um, oh. And again, two you know very experienced PCB designers being very excited about it. But yeah, I do think in general there will be people that are hesitating, and there's going to be people that jump in with with both feet. And I do like your your um, slight shift from age to experience. I think that's that's a better way to put it because <laughs> it really doesn't have much to do with age. It has much much more to do with experience, which sometimes bring it brings in age. But there are some people who get more experience over a shorter period of time too. I mean, so it's it, it's relative that way. Mm -hmm. So get out your crystal ball and uh, what are your predictions for our industry of over the next several years? Um, you know, five to ten years. Do you see us moving in a, a specific direction? Um, you know, things that come to mind are the electrification of cars, the miniaturization of assemblies, the proliferation of IoT. That's that's what I see when I look out there. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as well? And do you see um, opportunities and challenges uh, coming our way that with any degree of specificity? <laughs> oh, with my great crystal ball. Um, yes. I, I see all we're going to play this back 10 you... years from now. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to play it back 10 years from now and see if, <laughs> if, uh, if the psychic uh, Tara Dunn was accurate. See if we were right. Um, no, I, I see all the same things that you do. You know, I see that overall the miniaturization um, is going to continue and we're going to have to learn how to deal with that from an electronic standpoint. Um, and that's why I think I'm so excited about the additive options that are available because they're opening up a whole new world. You know, and I talked today about the ASAP process. You know, I there are multiple generations of that type of technology currently in development. So as we kind of move through the learning curve with ASAP, you know, we're going to be ready for the next, which is maybe embedded um, electronics in, in, in a way that's new and, and not something that we're doing today. I think, you know, in the automotive world, there's a lot of applications of sensors and things like that. And I think um, that that number is just going to continue to grow as well. And, you know, I think some of these additive processes that we're looking at, you know, particularly the ASAP, um, the, the enabling piece of that technology is not limited to two dimensions. So it can also be applied right. in a three-dimensional way. And I see that in development on the horizon as well. So we'll never run out of things to do. We'll never run out of problems to solve. We'll never get um, bored. We'll never get bored. That's <laughs> for sure. That's for sure. So Tara, I saved the most important question to the very end. Uh, you were the uh, producer of an event with a, within our industry with the most awesome name any event in our industry could have. Keep in mind, sometimes from the outside world looking in, we're not the most exciting industry uh, to be in. Uh, but uh, you had an event called uh, Geekapalooza. Mm -hmm. uh, I know right now everything's, you know, the hold button's pushed, the pause button's pushed right now. Nothing's happening right now because we can't get together. And it's probably hard to do an event like that through cameras uh, and, and, and screens. But tell me what Geekapalooza is and, uh, and the history of it. What made you... Think of that. Was it too much to drink one night, and it, it just got in your head, or because that's an awesome name for for a for an event? There's probably some truth in that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so um, Tanya Martin, now heading up SMTA, her and I um, are you know been friends for a long time. Um, when I first met her, she was working for a contract manufacturer, 
And I, of course, was working on the fabrication side of things. And so we will get together and, you know, do lunches, brainstorm, things like that. We actually did. We joke about it now, but we would make our own contests, right? How many cold calls can you do? And it was, it was just our thing. We had fun with it. And we were talking one day over lunch and kind of talking about the fact that in our local area in Minneapolis, at the time, there wasn't a lot of in-person events to go attend. You know, I mean, maybe a small one here or a small one there, but nothing that was all encompassing, you know, as, you know, 10, 15 years earlier, there had been much larger group meetings for networking and things like that. So kind of were complaining about it and turn that all the way around to, well, why don't we do something about it? And so we decided to host an event and see how many people would be interested in coming to it and did come up with the name Geekapalooza. I think that was Tanya Martin. I owe her that credit for that. And we started planning it and we were going to do it kind of in the, you know, back room at, at a local you know, restaurant bar, thinking we would have, I don't know, 30 people if we were lucky that wanted to come to this. And um, we had, I forget the number right now over the top of my head, but we were well over 100 people. We ended up, wow. we were close to 150. We had, we ended up having to scrap that idea and rent out a much bigger space. Um, and, and it really turned out to be a really fun event. So the idea behind the event is networking, obviously, but it, it's a very social event um, where there's not like trade show booths and things like that, that you go visit. There may be sponsored tables, but it's very laid back and you can come and go, you know, as you want music, food, cocktails, games. And I think more importantly is the fact that we are inclusive of the entire industry. You know, really recognize that it takes all aspects of the industry working together to create, you know, a successful electronics device. So inviting, you know, materials and design, fabrication, assembly, manufacturers, wraps, the components, the associations, really inviting everybody into one spot for just a few hours of fun to kind of talk and, you know, get to relate to each other on a way that's, you know, not through the screen um, or behind the screen, depending um, how you look at that. So we had a great time with it. You know, we hosted it several years here in Minneapolis, and we also did an event in California, and we did one in Boston as well. And I really hope that at some point in time, we're going to be able to continue that because it really was a fun thing to do. Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, increasingly miss the the physical events. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never uh, have gone to a Geekapalooza, so that is now on my bucket list. <laughs> on my, my career bucket list yeah. to attend one of those events. And I think it's an important event in that uh, our industry is quite siloed. The, the board fab industry and the assembly industry are right next to each other, you know, along the riverbed. Um, you know, we're just downstream from, from them. But we know very little about that, that industry. It seems like it's, you know, this, this black art, you know, somehow somewhere in some other country, something is made or even here, and then it's shipped to us, and then we open it up, and, and there's just, from an assembler standpoint, there's just not a lot of appreciation for uh, the technology and, and the um, effort behind building a board, a bare board, and there's just not a lot of knowledge. At least that's been my experience, and, and I'm not sure if that applies the other way around, too. There just seems to be this you know, great wall separating industries that are just, you know, right next to each other in, in terms of, um, uh, of producing a product. So uh, to get the board fab industry, the designers, the assemblers, you know, all, all facets of 
one industry together, I think is a, is a, a good move. Uh, it, it helps break down some of those silos and, and I think it helps the assembly side understand the fab side and the fab side understand the assembly side. Does that, does that ring true in your world as well? Oh, it absolutely does. And you know, I have a great example. I think it was the Orange County event that we did Geekapalooza at. I remember just walking through the room and happened to notice a conversation. I walked up and it was an assembler and a fabricator, and they were talking about a problem that they were having with a particular design. And they started talking about materials and they went, wait a second, he's right over here. And they pulled him in and here, you know, they had a 10 minute conversation and made so much progress towards solving, you know, that challenge that they were having right there with, you know, a cocktail in their hand, <laughs> listening to music. But it, you know, it does help break down the barriers, you know, and to see people face to face and interact that way. You know, I remember years ago before the internet, I don't want to admit that I worked in the industry before the internet, but I did. <laughs> you know, there was, you know, maybe at the time, 3,000 fabricators or something like that in the United States. And it was pretty common for assemblers or designers to go visit fabricators and fabricators to visit their, you know, assembly in, in back and forth and really got a, a much better opportunity to learn about the challenges that each side faces. And um, I just don't think we're able to do that as well today. You know, for one thing, there's maybe a tenth of those printed circuit board fabricators left in the United States. So that just the travel and the proximity is a challenge in itself. And I think with the internet, it seems like all that information should be available to us readily. Go out and search it on Google or whatever your choice of browser is. And, um, but, but you lose something in that. And as quickly as you can sure. get that information, you do lose the, the human element of that and what challenges people face. So I, I really like any event that's going to help bring people together to communicate more face to face. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to the restoration of, of those events as well. Um, you can only spend so long looking into a camera, you know, and, <laughs> and a screen. I've been a so, lifelong uh, traveler. Like I've probably traveled half of every year for my entire career. And I haven't, I haven't traveled since March. <laughs> right. Well, I did my first um, business trip uh, a few months ago to Minnesota, to SMTA uh, headquarters uh, for some um, new board member orientation. And it was, it, it just felt so good to sit on an airplane, this, you know, which was normally just not the best experience in the world. You know, when you're, when you're a road warrior, you're just, mm -hmm. it's just a means to an end. It, I, I felt very special to sit on this airplane and, and be given my little, uh, you know, four ounce bottle of water served in a Ziploc bag for my safety and you know, what, all the bizarre things that they're doing right now. But it did feel good. It felt very normal. It was a great sense of, of normalcy uh, for that one moment. Yes. Uh, and, I look uh, forward to doing that again. And I, I'm promising myself I won't complain like I used to about the travel. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. I I asked for a drink and they said, well, my only choices are beer, wine, and water. And I'm like, well, I just want a soda. And they said, no, beer, wine, and water. But I, I didn't complain. Any other time I would have been, you know, writing a letter to the president of the airline. But yeah. um, no, not now. No. And and everyone, uh, all the all the crew just exhibited this, this vibe of gratefulness that we were traveling on their airline, you know, and, and – uh, everyone appreciated each other. It was a whole different experience. It was reminded me a little bit of immediately after nine 11 where everyone kind of pulled together and we're all in the same boat. And, you know, there the, the were, the differences were put aside at least temporarily. 
and this felt kind of the same way. We were a, a group of of warriors in the middle of a pandemic and the silver tube flying through the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, we all had a, a common bond for a moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, right. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, three weeks after this thing is over, it'll all be, you know, everyone bitching and moaning about, <laughs> you know, airline fees and yeah. something being six minutes late and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. The overhead bags, uh, bins being full. You know, we'll, we'll get back to normal, I'm sure. I have but. to retrain myself. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Tara, thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest today. And, and uh, I really appreciate all of your knowledge, uh, specifically in the uh, uh, flex and rigid flex world and, and board fabrication in general and additive manufacturing. Thanks for bringing me up to speed uh, on, on all of that and, and my audience as well. Um, for anyone who wants to get a hold of uh, Tara, um, I will have her contact information in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening to this through um, uh, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you don't see those show notes. But if you go to Spreaker.com, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com, uh, that's the, the host site for this podcast. And in there, you'll be able to see the show notes. And within the show notes, we'll have Tara's contact information. So again, Tara, thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest today. It's nice to see you. I, I'll look forward to seeing you in a more face-to-face environment at the next Geekapalooza. Yes, absolutely. Or, or whatever event it is. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me, it was for me too. And, and informative. So thanks again. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Spreaker.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat, who syndicates this show at PCBChat.com, where you can also listen to Editor-in-Chief Mike Butos' interesting discussions with industry leaders. You can also listen to the show at Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm. This show and many other reliability-based podcasts are available there. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Reliability Matters. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.